This quarter, we're looking at practical tips on ministry, and today's message is continuation of that theme. Now, last Sabbath, you might have perhaps felt reproved or rebuked, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, but our message was about the importance of not just taking in the message, but also sharing it with others, that we have a responsibility not only to hear the Word of God, but to share it with others, to give it to others, become a fountain for others. And today's message is meant to go along hand in hand with that, about now that we have the burden of our hearts to share, apparently we have a responsibility, we have a burden. In fact, hopefully it should be a joy that just springs out of us, like Christ said, like a fountain that bubbles up. We want to share, we want to take in the message so we can transmit it to others. How do we do so effectively? Again, we're looking at practical aspects of Christian living, and today's message is entitled, Tips on Sharing Your Faith. Now, before we begin, I want to be clear, this is not, in this one message, the entirety of everything you need to know about sharing your faith. There is far more that we could say than what we're going to say here. This is not... Uh, the exhaustive study, this is not the 400-level class. This is just basic ideas that are good to have in mind, basic principles as we look to be that fountain for others, okay? So if you think, boy, you should have said that in your sermon, you're probably right. But I don't want to be here for two or three hours, and I don't think that you want to either. Good, not one amen. Good. Hopefully somebody's going to disagree. No, 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 keep us here longer. That'd be great, but... There you go. But for now, just simple tips, uh, simple principles to keep in mind as we look to share our faith. But before we get any study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. As we've mentioned several times, it is a beautiful day outside, but I praise God that we're able to be in your house on the inside today. And as we turn now our attention to your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit's power be here. Lord, speak through me. Let the words that have been prepared be your words, be with the hearts of the hearers, and let us all become better sharers of your truth, your message for this time. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the uniqueness of Seventh-day Adventism is its present truth message. That's what makes us unique. Includes Jesus' current work, and I don't know if you've been coming. How many of you, show of hands, have been attending our meetings? Praise God. All right, the majority of you. That's fantastic. And we've noted all in all, as the book of Revelation opens and closes with this great promise of the second coming, history through prophecy is revealed, goes right down and marches right to our time. We believe we're living in that time just before Jesus comes, during the ongoing cleansing of the sanctuary, or the investigative judgment, that pre-advent work preparatory to Jesus' return. We believe in Jesus' current work of judgment and to follow his soon return. And of course, closely related are other vital truths, such as the state of the dead, the seventh-day Sabbath, and on and on and on. This body of truth is summed up in what we call the three angels' what? Messages. We have the three angels' messages. This present truth message that's to be given to every tribe, tongue, and people, the three angels' messages have been entrusted to the remnant body of Christ to share with the world. Now, in sharing this body of truth with the world, it can be easy to fall into one of two traps. 
One of two traps. A, or one, giving the message so abruptly that it seems shocking, startling, crazy, alien, whatever you want to call it, cult-like. It's so radically different from all the previous experience, and it's so quickly on the nose and so pointed that instead of being appealing, it's actually repelling. That's one danger. Now, the danger on the other side is the complete opposite of that. It's out of fear of that possibility that we just described, not saying anything. We round off the corners, water it down to such an extreme because we don't want to seem crazy that we end up not really saying anything at all. And the message never actually gets presented. Now, I don't know if Satan would be pleased with one more than the other, but they both end up with the message being rejected. Either it's repulsed or it's not even heard to begin with and the people leave unchanged. So we have these two traps when we have such an extensive body of truth, such a pointed message, such a pertinent, relevant message for our day. How do we present it in such a way that it's heard? Because more than, I know this sounds a little bit weird, but more than us saying the message, God wants the other people to hear the message. Does that make sense? So yes, we have a responsibility to say it, but we have a responsibility to say it in such a way that they actually hear it. So yes, we wanted, last Sabbath we wanted to inspire you. You should be messengers, but now how do we express the message effectively? Let's go to Luke chapter 16. One of the most difficult passages in Scripture is actually a parable of Jesus. Luke chapter 16 Jesus tells the parable of the unjust steward, and we'll begin with verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was doing what? Wasting his goods. Now, what is his one job? To care for his goods, right? He's the steward. He's the caretaker. But apparently, in his responsibility, he hasn't been keeping his responsibilities, and the man finds out, the owner finds out. So, verse 2, he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So this meeting that he has with him, he wants to convey two points. Number one, well, three points, I guess. Number one, I've heard the things. Number two, I want to see an account. I want you to show me the books of record. And number three, you're fired. I've heard what's going on. I need to see it for myself. Bring the books. Show me what you've been up to. And that'll be your last act on the job. You're fired. Well, so there's going to be a follow-up meeting, but he already knows how it's going to end. He's going to lose his job. But he has to bring to that meeting all the books, all the records, the things that he's been responsible for keeping to the rich man's notice. So what's that? Look what he does here. Verse 3. Then the steward said, where? Within himself. So 
So he's, he's getting this message on the outside, but he's, he's formulating a plan. He's thinking like, hmm, this puts me in a tough spot. I have to lose my job. I'm going to show him the books, and it's going to be obvious that I haven't been doing the job I've been doing, and oh, it's going to be bad. So he starts to think. So he said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. So notice he's kind of examining the field right now. He's like, all right, here's my situation. I'm going to lose my job. What should I do in response to this? Okay, He's cogitating. He's thinking about this, mulling it over. For my master is taking the stewardship away from me, and he starts listing off his options. And the first thing he says, I cannot do what? Dig. Apparently he's been a office man, a pencil pusher, a paper passer, whatever you want to call him, sitting in an office, and he said, I, I can't dig. It'll break me. I'll, I'm done. I don't have the calluses for it. I cannot dig. And what's the next option? Begging. But what's he say about that? I'm ashamed. So my outsides aren't built for digging, and my insides can't take begging. So what should he do? Verse 4. I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. He's going to be, I'm going to be kicked out of my house, and I don't have enough money. I'm not going to have money. I'm not going to have a job, and I'm not going to take, I'm not going to beg. I'm not going to do either one of those things. Well, how will I live? How will I eat? How will I go forward? Well, I'll move in with them. Well, who are they? Well, the story goes on. Verse 5, so he called every one of his master's debtors to him. Remember, he's going to have the follow-up meeting with the master, but he's still got his job for right now. He said, while I have this position, while I have the office for the rest of the day, we're going to have a fire sale, (laughs) or better yet, an I'm fired sale, right? And said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Half off for you today. Yeah, I know, I'm just a really nice guy. Write it down quick, he's coming. 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. You get 20% off. He's, everybody he comes in, like lines up the debtors, sends out a mass text message, email, whatever he does, sends word around, come have a quick meeting, today only, sale on your debt. You owe 100, you owe 50, you owe 80, you owe 20. Going once, going twice, and he's starting to wheel and deal as never before. He's probably worked harder this day than he's worked all the other days where he's had the job. And look at verse 8. This is where it gets odd. So the master, does it say reproved? No. What does he do to him? He commends him. Commended the unjust steward because he had dealt how? Shrewdly. And then look at the application that's made. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Looks like the master took a look and said, well, by the way, you're still fired, but you thought about your situation, you made a plan, you executed it flawlessly. 
I wish you'd have had the same creativity and shrewdness when actually working for me. But when you were put into a hard place, you got really creative, really ingenious. You started really putting things together. You got really personal. Hey, you come on over here. I know we haven't talked in a while, but it's time to talk. 50% off. I'll be your buddy. I'll be your friend. Why was he trying to build up friendships? Because he needed a house to move into, right? So he's getting really creative. When his back's against the wall, he really puts it into high gear. Now, unethically, but what do you expect? He's already an, un, he's an unjust steward. He's a bad guy. He's just doing bad really well, right? And the owner of the home, again, doesn't give him his job back, but at least commends him. Because, boy, that was shrewd. You really saved yourself there from digging or begging. You made friends. And you got more done for me, honestly. I got more collected from you <laughs> in one day. And then Christ's principle. The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Is it possible that to accomplish wicked ends or self-serving, self-aggrandizing, self-focused ends, people will become more creative, more hardworking, more ingenious in how they approach the project working for a bad end, than righteous people do doing good. Let's put an even closer application. Is it possible that Satan is more shrewd, cunning, and crafty about how to get people lost than we are about how to get them saved? Is it possible that Satan is working harder for souls than we are? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 456. It's a really handy reference for remember. Testimonies 3, 4, 5, 6. Satan understands the weakness of man. He has the knowledge of which he has accumulated for ages and is an experienced hand at his work. His cunning and devices are well matured and are too often successful because God's people are not as wise as serpents. Writing to a, an individual who's headed off to Southern Africa, appropriately enough, in a little book, a little volume entitled Testimonies to Southern Africa, page 16, she was addressing how do you deal with these new people that you're going to approach? And her counsel is this God would have you be as lambs among wolves, as wise as serpents, and as harmless as doves. We're going to be coming back to that reference again. You should plan carefully what to say and what to leave unsaid. Apparently there's a time to say something, there's a time not to say something. She goes on, this is not practicing deception. It is working as Paul worked. He says, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Now we'll come back to Paul in just a moment, but both of those references quote Jesus Christ, that we should be wise as serpents, yet at what harmless as doves. Now think about that. Wise as serpents, what in Scripture does the serpent always represent? Satan, sin, wickedness, yes? Remember when Satan was cast out in Revelation chapter 12, it calls him that devil, the Satan, or the serpent of old who leads the whole world astray? He shows up in the garden, the serpent. Even when Christ was embodied as the serpent, you know, on the pole, it was because he has become sin, right? 
And here he says, I want you to be, didn't he didn't say as evil as serpents, right? <laughs> but we should take a cue and be as wise as serpents, but at the same time harmless as doves. So our character should remain pure. Our, our motives, our intentions, our aims should be noble and Christ-like, but we should be shrewd. We should be thoughtful. We should think before we do. Now again, she mentions working as Paul worked. How did Paul work? Well, let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. We've seen it already once this morning. We'll look at it again. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Here is his principle. Here's how he works. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. For what purpose? That I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now verse 21, to those who are without law as without law. Now pause, does that mean, so when I'm around Gentiles, I break the law like they do? No. And he has to clarify that. Being not, uh, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, right? that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. His goal, as he approaches people, first of all, he has to recognize which group he's looking at, right? Are these Jewish? Are they Greek? Are they long in the faith? Are they new in the faith? Are they, what's their background? He has to be a bit of a psychologist. So he says, before I present, I have to understand the audience so that what I say is actually heard. You see this in his different approaches. You see it in Athens. He would go and speak to the people, and he would quote their literature, quote their poets. Doesn't open the Old Testament scripture at all. But he's still preaching the same message, but in a way that they will come along and hear it. When he goes into the synagogue, he opens up page after page of the law and the Torah and trying to show how Christ was the fulfillment of that. It both ends in Christ, but it takes different avenues to get there. And why does he say he does this? His goal is to win the more. He's trying to build up the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just turn the page over. He's very practical, very pragmatic. Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are, are helpful. It goes back to the, yes, the truth is that Jesus is coming in, that the investigative judgment started in 1844, but you've got to get them there first. You've got to build to that. He said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. It doesn't actually get the job done. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify let no one seek his own, but each one seek the what? The other's well-being. Of course, you have a body of truth. You have a message to give, and I want to give it all. But more than me wanting to give it, my goal should be to have them hear it, to have them accept it. So put yourself in their position. What if I've never heard any of these kind of things before? If you're jumping to, you know, X, Y, or Z, and we haven't even established A, B, C yet... What good is it going to do? Again, we see in the conclusion of that chapter, look at verse 31. Therefore, whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all to what? 
the glory of God, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. By the way, being a people pleaser doesn't sound like a good term, is it? But he said, look, I try to please all men in all things as far as possible. I want to meet them where they are. Why? Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Evangelism, page 141. It says our ministers, I'm guessing it applies to our members as well, but I'll take this one on the chin for all of us. Our ministers need more of the wisdom that Paul had. When he went to labor for the Jews, he did not first make prominent the birth, betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. Notwithstanding, these were the special truths for that time. He didn't walk into a Jewish synagogue, and the very first word he says, your Messiah has come, and friends, you killed him. Now, is that true? Yes. But you've got to convict him that that's the Messiah first, and then see their role in it, right? Again, he did not make prominent the birth, betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ, notwithstanding these were the special truths for that time. He first brought them down step by step over the promises that had been made of a Savior and over the prophecies that pointed him out. Because that's neutral ground. Like they already agreed that the law of uh, Scripture, the, the Torah, the, the writings of Moses, these are authoritative. So there's no offense there. We start where they are, meet them where they are. After dwelling upon these until the specifications were distinct in the minds of all, and they knew that they were to have a Savior, he then presented the fact that his Savior had already come. Christ Jesus fulfilled every specification. This was the guile with which Paul caught souls. He presented the truth in such a manner that their former prejudice did not arise to blind their eyes and pervert their judgment. He didn't go out of his way to make things so brash and so stark that that they would have almost a, a guttural reaction to it and block off the new what's coming in. He wants to walk them there step by step. And thus Paul, we say it in 2 Corinthians, says, I caught you with guile. And he's not saying, I'm sorry, he's not saying he lied, but there was strategy. It was creativity, it was ingenuity. And he said, that's how I got you. Now go get others that way. Friends, we must be deliberate and thoughtful to always be sharing present truth, but in a way that is most effective. Again, Testimonies to Southern Africa makes this intensely practical. Written to a missionary, he's going to go to people who don't know about the particulars of our faith. She writes, A great and solemn work is before us to reach the people where they are. Do not feel it your bounden duty the first thing to tell the people, We are Seventh-day Adventists. We believe the seventh day is the Sabbath. We believe in the non-immortality of the soul and thus erect most formidable barriers between you and those you wish to reach. Think about them. The very first thing you say, when you, if you walk into someone's life, whether it's at the grocery store, or they come to the meetings, or they knock on their door, or whatever it is, if the very first thing that comes out of your mouth is, by the way, the grandmother that you think you've, has been watching over you for the past 30 years is actually in the ground, dead. She's not in heaven. That's what we believe. Slow down we got to get there first, right? It's a big truth. 
And I believe it's a peaceful, beautiful, godly, biblical truth. And all things are lawful, but it's not helpful in that moment. Now, that's not to say that if the opportunity arises, you can't walk them through, well, what does the Bible say about life? What does the Bible say about death? What comfort can we draw? Our hope is not in the grave, it's in the second coming. And you start to preach the truth as it is in Jesus and walk them there. Oh. So the same message is approached a different way, can be more effective. This was her counsel. She says, but speak to them as you may have opportunity upon points of doctrine wherein you can agree and dwell on practical godliness. Start where they are and build. Give them evidence that you are a Christian desiring peace and that you love their souls. Give them evidence that you're actually Christian Therefore, the message that you bear is Christian as well. Let them see that you are conscientious. Thus, you will gain their confidence. And then there will be time enough for the doctrines. Let the hard iron heart be subdued, the soil prepared, and then lead them along cautiously, presenting in love the truth as it is in Jesus. Gaining their confidence. I was listening to a a powerful message just the other day about influence. Now, I don't know what it's like in all workplaces, but I know having been a teacher that, as was stated, that the, the, the truth of the matter is that if you're in a school, that if you have influence with those students, you can't do anything wrong in their eyes. But if you lose that influence... You can't do anything right. You may be right as rain, but that personal influence builds a bridge to what you're trying to do. We need to win souls, not because we want to tick off that I won this soul and I won this soul and I, I, I. No, 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 no. It's because we actually love souls and we want to see them in the kingdom. And in order to come to learn, you got to like them. You got to spend time with them. You got, you know, sometimes we, 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 we paint this picture that evangelism is formulaic. You do this thing, you put up the thing, then three months later they're going to come in, then you're going to do this, and at the end of the line, I'd like to sign up. It's a very personal work. It takes putting your arm around people, listening to them, and some of the stuff they're going to say, I promise you, is crazy. I won't lie, I've heard some crazy this week. And it's such a temptation to say, hey, that's crazy. But you look for what can you affirm about that without selling out the principles, without selling out the doctrine, without rounding off the edges. But what is it that you believe that, yes, corresponds with Scripture, but let's sift out that error through the Word of God and correct that, right? You look for those areas. You look for those areas. You, you, You have someone who can't wait for the second coming of Jesus, but they say, When we get raptured and the saints are taken to heaven, well, I don't believe it's going to be a secret. I don't believe the airplanes are going to fall out of the sky because of this, you know, that the pilot was taken away and the passenger on row five was not, you know. But I do believe the saints will be gathered together with Christ, amen? They'll be lifted up from the earth, yes. So we focus on, yes, I have have the hope of the soon coming of Jesus as well. 
Now, the manner of his coming, we'll be addressing it this week in our meetings, may not be what they're expecting, but tie into that. I have the same faith and the same Jesus and the same Jesus is coming back and I can't wait to be with him. And on that great and glorious resurrection morning, we're going to see our friends and loved ones. Beautiful things. Affirm what you can and correct where necessary. But you start where they are. You start where they are. And that building influence. Apparently, Christian character is something that should be visible and manifest in the life. I would imagine that the exact same truth would be more readily accepted if there's already been a groundwork of genuine Christian interest and friendship developed already. I would imagine that most of the people, in fact, many in this very room, who have come into the present truth of the three angels' messages have not done that walk all by themselves. Now, some have, just the truth itself, but many had a personal relationship with someone where they expounded this truth and they could study together and they could spend time in their houses and they can grow in the faith and they can mature as they go. That it's wrapped up in personal work. It's very personal ministry. Thus we read one of the more famous passages from the Ministry of Healing, page 143. Christ's method, what? Alone. Will bring true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. Once he had that influence established, all he had to do was just pluck it. Come, come, come. Oftentimes we stop right there, but the statement continues. There is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. And again, I'll take this one on the chin for all of us. <clears throat> if less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with they that rejoice. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God, this work will not, cannot be without fruit. Now that doesn't mean that every single person you ever come in contact with will be converted, but the message that we have, if connected with Christ's method, will be the only way to bring true success. True success is the truth as it is in Jesus. And friends, we are Jesus' representatives. We are supposed to be his hands and feet. Somebody's going to see your face, and to them, that's the face of Jesus. So yes, the message that comes out must be the message for this time. But it must be embodied in the person and the character of Jesus Christ as we walk our life. Let me ask you, like I've been asking all the people, has today's message been clear? Can you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Now, hopefully, we'll take last week's burden for giving this message. With this week's, Christ method alone will bring true success, and each of us will be those missionaries. Maybe not to southern Africa, but to southern Michigan. Maybe to North Muskegon. Maybe to the Heights. Maybe to Wolf Lake. Maybe to our area. 
Lord, how can I be more like you and be a better, more efficient, shrewd, ingenious, creative, practical missionary for you? That's our message today. And I pray that that's the prayer of your heart. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.